Section 12 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andre Floria. Chapter 12 The Pangs of Remorse. Such had been Bertram Gnault's life as he had to look back upon it from the bed upon which he lay when we first introduced the shattered wreck of manhood to the reader in the opening pages of this tale. For to him, at last, the day of satiation, shall we say, the day of contrition, came, as it must come to each and all of us. For that which we sow or plant or borrow or take, that must we reap or repay or return. Nay, if we do but sow the wind, even the whirlwind shall be our reward. And so, to Bertram Gnault, the day of reckoning came. The world and all that it could offer had paled and sickened in his eyes. He beheld his excesses in all their naked deformity. He saw the hollow emptiness of the phantom which for all these ten or fifteen years of his life he had pursued. He saw how unsatisfying, how unworthy was the cult of pleasure which verily he had almost worshipped as his god. There has been a time in the life's history of each and all of us when we take our first step out of the direct and narrow way. That first false step in our pilgrimage is taken full early, God knows. All, every one of us, come into this world equally innocent and equally good, equally sinless. Vessels equally perfect from the Maker's hand. But all of us have not wandered equally soon or equally far astray. We hear of blessings in disguise, but do not oftener curses the devil's fishhooks come to us in the deceptive guise of blessings? Did not Bertram Gnault's inheritance, his wealth, his millions, become his stumbling block which brought him where he lay? Did not Bertram Gnault estimate at their true worth the value of his riches then? There was no anchor of hope left to him to cling to then, as life seemed ebbing away as the strands in the weakened cable which held him to it were parting one by one. And so to Vernwood, where, in the last twelve or fifteen years, he had spent perhaps not more than twice as many months. He came back, he almost feared, nay, almost hoped, to die. For what had existence, what had life left in it that he could enjoy? Of the cup of its deceitful pleasures, he had imbibed to the very dregs, drank deeply till their taste was to him as gall. The fullness of that true, pure happiness of domestic life, which might have saved both his body and his soul, was the one thing which had vanished beyond his reach. Even of the good, the full desire is not to be granted here. Such seems the unscrutable and universal law. Although we have intimated that Bertram occupied the mansion, yet it would be truer to say that he occupied a single room. In what we may call its state apartments, silence and darkness and dust and desolation reigned supreme. And out of all his revenues he lived merely like a lodger, in a style and at a rate of expenditure for his personal needs, which almost any laborer or any miner on his estate could have paid. At first, he spent his days in moody solitude, was taciturn and morose, then came a step downwards. One more parting lurch of the wreck, wreck of body, 
and wreck of mind. The mind seemingly ever haunted by some vision, some hallucination of a shadowy jeweled hand ever before his eyes, at which as he gazed, he raved and shrank from and cowered at in the most abject fear, or stared wildly at from his bed, whence now he never rose. Even those who might have administered to him might have brought comfort to him. Even the parasites and psychophants that ever hang on to a rich man, even these he had driven from him. Jules Massey alone, his fidelity immovable, stood by his friend and master, or rather, I should say, was suffered to stand by him, even unto death, even till the end should come. And thus the two were together in the midnight solemnity of the darkened room. Then, with tired, worn look, the sick man paused in his delirious raving, and held his breath to listen to some fancied sound from without. Massey, was not that the sound of a horse's tread upon the coach road? he asked. No, Massa, think not, answered his servant in an evasive tone, for he knew his patient only too well, and he thought his own quick ear would have detected any unusual sound. Yes, yes, it must be. Go again to the terrace, Massey, and listen. Lumley must have come. Certainly, surely he must. Jules Massey again did as he was ordered, and again passed out into the pale, clear light of the August moon. Higher and higher in the heavens rose the great full orb. Her refulgence seemed to bathe the matchless landscape in a flood of subdued and blushing glory. The reigning silence of the night was impressive and supreme. Then suddenly there fell upon Jules Massey's ear a subtle, uneasy rustle of foliage. Whence it came, he wist not. It seemed but as the midnight tremor of the aspen leaves, as they shivered upon the parent boughs in a passing breath from heaven. Jules stood silent and motionless, listening in the midnight stillness, as we say, with all his ears. But still, once more the unbroken silence reigned. Then suddenly, as if startled from its rest, a pheasant fluttered noisily from one of the trees upon the lawn, and flying away on whirring wing was lost to sight and sound in some far-off woodland bray. At that moment, a cry of bodily or mental agony, louder than common from the sick man's chamber, recalled Jules Massey quickly to the sufferer's bedside. The delirium was very strong upon him, and he was sitting upright, cowering back and recoiling apparently in the utmost terror from some imaginary moving object before his eyes, evidently palpable to him but unseen to other eyes. For the hundredth time Jules Massey followed the direction of his finger and his wild gaze, but Massey saw nothing save the old oak paneling or the heavy dark upholstery which shadowed the room. For several minutes did this wild fit of terror possess him, racking the poor sufferer's already weakened frame. Then it passed off, and he seemed to regain a little of consciousness. Jules Massey seized the opportunity afforded by the lucid interval to smooth the sufferer's pillow, to offer nourishment, and administer a soothing draft in the hopes that it would induce repose. But although he lay there quieted and somewhat tranquilized for a time, his wide-open eyes were fixed on the dark face which bent so pityingly over him. Massey, how goes the night? He asked this time in a quieter and more rational tone. 
The colored man drew from his waistcoat pocket a large gold repeater. Massa is within fifteen minutes of one o'clock, he replied. An old Lumley should have been here at the latest by ten, added Bertram, still maintaining his transient interval of consciousness. You told him in the telegram that the train should arrive at Vernwood Village at nine? That is so, Massa. Then why isn't he here? All the reply that Massey made was to shake his head mournfully. Again, there was a silent pause. Jules, how long would it take you to go to Vernwood Village? To ride there, of course, I mean, asked the invalid. Vernwood Village, Massa? Me ride to Vernwood Village tonight? Then how about you? What do you think would become of you if I rode to Vernwood Village? And there played over his black visage a smile of contempt of pity not untinctured with a touch of scorn. But supposing I order you, Massey, supposing I say you shall go to Vernwood Village, what then? To this argument Massey made no response. For a while he paced to and fro, up and down the room sorrowfully, as if in thought. Then he passed from the sick room into the adjoining study, from which, as already described, one might step through the low French window out on the terrace, and thence to the extension lawns and pleasure grounds which stretched far away on every side. The study was a luxuriously appointed room, that one room out of the many wherein everything had been arranged to minister the millionaire's convenience or comfort, or personal gratification, when in his days of activity and health. Who were to occupy those rooms when he was gone? when the hand of death had finally closed its grasp, when the silver cord was loosed and the golden bowl was broken, when he had been carried forth, whose laugh would echo thoughtlessly in those now tenantless halls, whose bairns would romp and revel in those rooms, then as forgetful and as disregardful of the late Bertram Gnault as of a leaf that has fallen, or of a flower that has bloomed and withered, or of a breeze that has blown? Who would enjoy all his wealth? These were questions which Bertram Gonault asked himself with a troubled spirit, in the full confidence, the full assurance of health. Procrastination and procrastination had fooled him, deceived him, lured him on to delay. Tomorrow would be soon enough, the tempter said, and now there had overtaken him a day in the which, with him, with Bertram Gonault, no tomorrow might ever come. Thus, it was that Mr. Lumley had been hurriedly summoned from London, from the quiet routine of his office in the vicinity of Lincoln's Inn Fields, to the lawns and bowers of Vernwood, on an errand of such sadness withal, as the disposition of all its owner's wealth. For half an hour, Jules Massey sat in the luxurious study chair before a blazing fire, which he had kept alight for his own comfort as well as that he might, when needed, minister to the requirements of the sick room. As Massey sat there in thought, no sound reached him, until, little by little, the regular and peaceful breathing of the sick man coming to him from the adjacent chamber told the watcher that the narcotic which he had administered was taking its usual effect, and that the patient had at last sunk into a peaceful repose. It was not the first time that Jules had given his patient the draft. The prescription of Bertram's attendant physician, and its effect, had always been to throw the sufferer into some hours of refreshing sleep. 
Then it was that Jules Massey rose quietly from his chair and crept softly to the bedside of his master, having mentally convinced himself that the sleep which he was enjoying was of that natural and refreshing kind from which he always woke renewed, as it were, for a fresh struggle against the haunting mental demon of his oppressing hallucination, and from which, in all likelihood, he would not wake till the later hours of the morning. Jules gave one last look at the sleeper, closed noiselessly the sick chamber door, then donning his hat, stepped again through the French casement, out into the cold, clear brightness of the silver moon. He hesitated for a moment only upon the terrace, then stepping down onto the gravel walk, or carriage drive which led from the lawns, and winding away through dense thickets of underwood and tall forest trees towards the entrance lodge, by which the estate and grounds of Vernwood were reached from the direction of Vernwood Village. Hard by this entrance stood the cottage or lodge of the gatekeeper, David Blackman, a functionary who combined in one personality the dual offices of gatekeeper and landscape gardener on the Vernwood estate. The cottage which had been erected in the reign of the present owner of Vernwood was built after the rustic model of an alpine chalet and stood some 300 yards fully from the mansion on the Vernwood Village Road. As Jules Massey came along the winding drive through the woodlands, within sight of the chalet, he noticed that the gate leading to the road stood open, a circumstance which, although he remarked to himself as unusual, caused him no great surprise. Probably David, knowing something of an expected arrival from Vernwood Station, had purposely left it open for the night. Still, this seemed hardly likely. The circumstance passed from Massey's mind, however, as he found himself standing immediately in front of the chalet. After repeated knockings, the gatekeeper David was aroused from his sleep, and appeared at an upper window of the chalet in a state of semi-attire. Jules Massey quietly requested him to come down, then waited on the drive below. Soon there was an unbarring and unbolting of doors, and in a state of temper not the most amiable, the gatekeeper appeared and approached Jules as he stood in the middle of the drive. Then glancing in the direction of the wide open gate, an expression of surprise escaped his lips. Have you been through that gate? he asked Massey. No. Why? Well, I left it shut when I went to bed. To that I could swear. How is he? Is he worse? asked the gardener with a searching, mysterious look into the black face. Jules might have been observed in the moonlight to shake his head, but he made no other or audible reply. David, I want you to go to Vernwood Village, he said a moment later. There was a peculiarity in Massey's tone that David did not comprehend. A ring of sadness, a choking sound as if something had stuck in Jules's throat, as he seemed half with difficulty to bring out the words. David looked closely again into the ebon visage of his fellow servant, but it betrayed less of the emotions which were working beneath it than as if that visage had been of the ordinary European hue. Go to Vernwood? Go to Vernwood Village this time of night? What for? David, there must be no what for about it. You must go. You can take Ranger from the stable and ride there if you like. But you must go to Vernwood Village and Vernwood Station and try to make out whether the nine o'clock train was stopped there last night and if any gent for here arrived from town. The lawyer was telegraphed for to come and settle up his affairs 
and my belief the sooner the better it's done. There was an air of mysteriousness in Massey's tone which seemed to quell David Blackman's curiosity and prompt him to an unquestioning obedience, or rather acquiescence, in the course of action proposed. Besides, Jules was, and ever had been, the mouthpiece, almost the second self of his master, and his presence seemed ever to be encircled with an areola of authority, like a halo, which only the direct emanation from the seat of supreme power could assume. It was, however, with the air of a man who goes unwillingly about what he is obliged to undertake, that David accompanied Jules to the stables in an ill and unamiable mood. The horse, Ranger, was saddled, then as noiselessly as possible led forth, and after a few more words with Jules Massey, David, being no great horseman, clambered awkwardly onto the animal's back and rode away. When David on Ranger left the stable yard, he rode out into the carriage drive, the way which had just been pursued by Jules Massey, and which was connected with the entrance to the stables by a by-road. Then keeping the horse as much as possible on the turf, he urged him into a rapid trot, passing his own cottage or chalet, out into the high road where the whole vicinity was overhung with a thickly, umbrageous growth of tall, leafy trees. He had passed his own house only by some fifty yards when suddenly Ranger came to a stand. His nostrils became distended, his eyes strained, and his mouth foamed as if in the presence of some terror. David looked about him, but nothing was visible to him. Then, with a sharp cut from the hazel switch which the rider held in his hand, the horse, overcoming all sense of fear or danger, sprang forward like an arrow from a bow. What was known as Vernwood Village consisted of a cluster of houses, hardly worthy as far as population went of being called a village at all. What population there was had flourished or languished from time immemorial, as the fortunes of the estate of Vernwood rose or fell. Although its commerce was of a most limited kind, that had happened to Vernwood which happened to many other English estates when the railway fever was at its height, the owners of Vernwood possessed sufficient local influence to practically compel, either by bribery or coercion, not only a railway to be engineered pretty much as they desired, but the erection of a station and the stoppage of trains was timed very much as they pleased. Thus, it was that the London lawyer, Mr. Lumley, summoned hurriedly to Vernwood, must come by the train by which both the master of Vernwood and Jules Massey expected him to arrive. A ride of some two miles in the moonlight brought David to the little station of Vernwood Village. Scarcely a light was visible in any of the adjacent dwellings, the dwellers in which were evidently enjoying their soundest hours of repose. Then he walked Ranger up to the station itself, in the hope of learning from headquarters the information which he sought. The aspect of Vernwood Station, even by day, was none of the liveliest, one or two green and rustic young porters, and an elder functionary, who officiated as station master, porter, factotum, and head clerk made up the complete staff. But as David approached the spot in those small hours, there was no sound or stir of human life. To return to Vernwood, as wise as he came, was no part of the sturdy Welshman's intent. After having himself been aroused out of his night's sleep, he experienced some mental solace, 
in the fact that he could now revenge on another that inconvenience which Jules Massey had inflicted upon himself. So, after a due examination of the precincts of the little station, he rode up to an adjacent dwelling, and as he sat on Ranger's back, began to strike one of the upper windows with his whip, till from certain sounds proceeding from within, he had the sweet satisfaction of believing that his wrong had been avenged. Then the upper window opened, and with certain uncomplimentary invectives and incivilities, the functionary, who commonly paraded in fustian, brass buttons, and corduroy, for once made himself visible to the naked eye in his undress suit. "'I wants to know where the nine o'clock train stopped here, and what what time?' asked David, who had not yet acquired a perfectly grammatical mastery of the English tongue. Then if you wants to know, why can't you come in a proper time to ask, and not break the public's night's rest by coming at an unearthly hour? No, the nine o'clock train did not stop here. And with that, the upper chamber window closed with a slam, thus leaving the still further angered David and Ranger figuratively and literally out in the cold. You go and be, ejaculated David. But this unamiable anathema the man in the warm, luckily for David, did not hear, and the anathema was lost upon the midnight air. End of section 12